This episode of History Goes Bump is entirely listener-supported. History tells the story of the world and of our lives. Sometimes that history goes bump in the night. Broadcasting from the center of oddity and the supernatural in central Florida, it's the History Goes Bump podcast. spooktacular people welcome to this 253rd episode of the history ghost bump podcast ghost tours for the theater of the mind i am your host diane and this is denise this episode is probably going to be the toughest episode we've ever done denise yes a very difficult one we have been asked by several of our listeners through the years to do concentration camps and we've always said absolutely no we didn't feel that that would be worthy of entertainment because that's mostly what our podcast is about is entertaining. But we also do like to educate. And we think it's important to talk about these time periods in our past that are very dark because hopefully we won't repeat them. So we are going to be talking on this episode about a holiday that will be this week, and that is Yom Hashaway. And then we'll get into talking about the Nazi death camps and some of the hauntings that are reputedly going on in them. Now, there's been no official investigation in any of these camps, but this is stuff that people claim to have experienced when they've been visiting. Before we get into that, we'd like to welcome to the Spooktacular crew, Brooke with an E. Hello, Brooke with an E. Marcus with a K. Hi, Marcus with a K. Marilyn. Hey, Marilyn. Melissa. Hello, Melissa. Katie with an IE. Hey, Katie with an IE. Rachel. Hi, Rachel. Sarah with an H. Hey, Sarah with an H. Kurt with a K and an E. Hello, Kurt with a K and an E. Bud. Hi, Bud. Carol with an E on the end. Hello, Carol with an E on the end. Melissa. Hey, Melissa. And Jackie with a Y. Hey, Jackie with a Y. And now this moment in oddity. The moment in oddity was suggested by Mari Cruz Aponte Valise. There is a Gothic church standing in the village of Sedlik in the Czech Republic that has come to be known as the Bone Church. From the outside, it appears to be a typical church, but when one enters the basement, they find a creepily beautiful ossuary. A local abbot made a pilgrimage to Jerusalem in the 13th century and brought back sacred soil to spread in the church's cemetery. After that, everybody wanted to be buried in that graveyard. The plague led to 30,000 victims being added to the cemetery. More burials came after the Crusades. The church was built in the 15th century, and many bones had to be moved at that time, so they were stacked in the ossuary beneath the church. The church hired a local woodcarver named Francis Rent in 1870 to help create something beautiful from the huge stack of bones. The bones were bleached and carved and then used to decorate the basement. Rent made chains of skulls to stretch across entryways, and hips and femurs were used to make chalices and crosses. The Sedlik Ossuary's Piste de Resistance is a gorgeous chandelier that incorporates every single bone in the human body at least once. The church is kept clean, with the bones being cleaned individually with a toothbrush every so often. The Bone Church is the second most visited destination in the Czech Republic. An ossuary completely decorated with human bones certainly is odd. 
And now, This Month in History. In the month of April, on the 3rd in 1995, Supreme Court Justice Sandra Day O'Connor became the first woman to preside over the court when she sat in for Chief Justice William H. Rehnquist, who was out of town. Sandra Day was born in Texas in 1930. She attended Stanford University and received a BA in economics in 1950 and then moved on to the Stanford Law School. She served on the Stanford Law Review with its presiding editor-in-chief, future Supreme Court Chief Justice William Rehnquist. She even dated him for a bit, and one has to wonder what they would have thought at the time if they knew they would both be on the U.S. Supreme Court one day and that she would sit in for him as Chief Justice. She married John J. O'Connor III in 1952 and eventually served as Assistant Attorney General of Arizona from 1965 to 1969. Then her time of female first started with her becoming the first woman to serve as Arizona's or any state's majority leader when she entered the Arizona Senate. In 1974, she was elected to the Maricopa County Superior Court, and in 1979, she was elevated to the Arizona State Court of Appeals. She served on the Court of Appeals Division I until 1981. In that year, she broke a major glass ceiling when she was appointed to the Supreme Court by President Ronald Reagan. This year, 2018, the Jewish community observes Yom Hashoah starting at sundown on April 11th. Yom Hashoah is Holocaust Remembrance Day, a day that the country of Israel observes to commemorate the extermination of approximately 6 million Jews and 5 million others who perished in the Holocaust. Concentration camps were built in several areas of Europe to accomplish what the Nazis referred to as the final solution. A few of them still stand today as reminders of a very dark time in history. With the energy created by the torture and death that occurred in these camps, it is easy to believe that haunting activity would be experienced at them. No official paranormal investigations have taken place at any camp out of respect and because such investigations would seem sacrilegious. But there are many reports of weird things being reported by people who have visited. Join us as we explore the history and hauntings of the Nazi death camps of the Holocaust. Denise, you have been to the Holocaust Memorial Museum in Washington, D.C. I have not had the opportunity to go there. Would you just share a little bit about what that museum is like? Yes. First of all, I didn't give myself enough time there, but it it starts out at the beginning going through a lot of the the stuff that happened prior to what most people know of with the Holocaust, because most of us in school have maybe learned or seen about what happened when they started gathering up the Jewish people and the other people and taking them to concentration camps and what happened at the camps. What was very interesting to me when I first went 
was the beginning where it was kind of talking about how a lot of the propaganda started going in from Hitler and how patient everything was to eventually lead up to what most people know as the Holocaust because they started out in the schools, you know, that like certain color eyes were not good and things like that. So they started kind of programming early on so that it would be easier, I guess, for people to flip over is what I was trying to figure out to flip over to do what they did because I've never been able to understand how you got so many people to create the heinous acts that they did. And when I was looking through there, so I was very, I guess, intrigued by how did we get to there more so than the stuff that I already knew. But it was a really well-done museum, a very solemn museum because obviously of, of the nature of what it was. It just was, was very sad and heavy to go through there, but I highly recommend it. It would not be like the bright side if you're looking for something, oh, let's go do something fun. But if you want to just really go to somewhere to honor and remember the people that were lost, it's an amazing museum. A lot of the time we don't want to look into concentration camps and these death camps because of what we said in the intro there with it being sacrilegious to do any kinds of investigations. And yet, when we look at other places where horrible things happen, like asylums and jails, we don't seem to have a problem with looking at that. I think for me, one of the reasons why it is so hard to look at the concentration camps is because of the numbers that we're talking about. While you may have a handful of people or hundreds of people that were mistreated in jails... But it's not the numbers that we're talking about here with the Holocaust. And of course, this is something that hits home for you and I, because one of the groups that was sent off to these concentration camps that didn't get talked a lot about in the beginning were homosexuals. And I don't know how many people know this, but one of the symbols of the gay community is an upside down pink triangle. And the reason why they have that symbol is because that is what gay people wore on their I don't their prison garb, I guess you would call it, when they were in the concentration camp. So the Jews had the Star of David. Gay people had an upside down pink triangle. And lesbians had an upside down black triangle. Correct. Definitely. And we'll talk about some of the other groups that got thrown in with the Jewish people as well. But we know that the, the main focus for the Nazis was to go after the Jewish people. And so there's a lot of different Holocaust Remembrance Days. Each country has their own. There's an international one. We chose this one because it comes from the Jewish community itself. And so we thought that that would be more fitting to uh, focus a little bit more on that. So this holiday that we're talking about is Yom Hashoah, and we hope we're saying it right. It's a National Memorial Day and public holiday in Israel. It was inaugurated in 1953 and signed into law by the Prime Minister of Israel, David Ben-Gurion, and the President of Israel, Yatsik Ben-Zvi. The full name of the day Yom Hashoah v. Hagavura, which translates to the Day of Remembrance of the Holocaust and the Heroism. It's marked on the 27th day in the month of Nisan, which can fall in either April or May, depending on the year. This is a week after the end of the Passover holiday and a week before Yom Hazakaran, which is Memorial Day for Israel's fallen soldiers. This marks the anniversary of the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising. The date was selected in a resolution passed by Israel's parliament, the Knesset, on April 12, 1951. Jewish communities around the world observe the holiday as well as individuals worldwide. So it's not just specific to Israel, but they are the ones who started it. Adolf Hitler was appointed Chancellor of Germany on January 30, 1933. Two months later, Nazis opened Dachau concentration camp near Munich, then Buchenwald near Weimar in central Germany followed by Sachsenhausen near Berlin and Ravensbrück for women. 
Laws against Jews start to ramp up in Germany, with them becoming more extensive in 1934. The year 1938 would find the Nazis implementing the strictest laws against Jews and requiring them to register their wealth and property and businesses. Other countries would start following suit in approving the Nuremberg Laws, which were racist and anti-Semitic laws. The gathering up of Jews would begin on September 21st in 1939, when instructions were issued to the SS Einsatzgruppen Special Action Squads in Poland regarding treatment of Jews, directing that Jews be gathered into ghettos near railroads for the future final goal. A census is also ordered, and the establishment of Jewish administrative councils within the ghettos were formed to implement Nazi policies and decrees. Heinrich Himmler visits Auschwitz for the first time on March 1st, 1941. He orders a massive expansion, including a new compound to be built at nearby Birkenau that can hold 100,000 prisoners. Auschwitz was a series of concentration camps set up in Poland, which was about 37 miles west of Krakow in 1940, and it was to house political prisoners. The original building was an abandoned Polish army barracks. The camp was named after the nearby town. The Auschwitz-Birkenau camp, or Auschwitz II, would become a death complex. Around 1.3 million people would be transported to the Auschwitz camp from 1940 to 1945. And the breakdown of those numbers is as follows. Jews, 1,095,000 deported to Auschwitz, of whom 960,000 died. 960,000. Poles, 147,000 were deported, of whom 74,000 died. Roma, or at the time they were called gypsies, we don't call them that anymore, 23,000 deported, of whom 21,000 died. So almost all of them that went there died. Soviet prisoners of war, 15,000 deported and died. All of the prisoners of war died there. And other nationalities, 25,000 deported, of whom 12,000 died. To facilitate killing, Auschwitz I was equipped with a gas chamber and crematorium. The original gas chamber was in the basement of the prison block, and this was block 11. And then later, a permanent gas chamber was constructed as part of the original crematorium outside the prison compound. It was at this camp that SS physicians like Joseph Mengele carried out medical experiments in the hospital and conducted pseudoscientific research on infants, twins, and little people. These physicians, and we put that in quotation marks, also performed forced sterilizations and castrations of adults. The black wall was located between the medical experiments barracks and prison block 11 and is where SS guards executed thousands of prisoners. The Auschwitz-Birkenau camp was built in October 1941 and eventually had the largest total prisoner population. Electrified barbed-wired fences divided the camp into 10 sections that housed different populations like women, men, a family camp for Roma, and a family camp for Jewish families deported from the Theresienstadt ghetto. The killing center here played a central role in the Nazis' final solution. During the summer and autumn of 1941, Zyklon B gas was introduced into the German concentration camp system as a means for murder. Zyklon B would be used in all the gas chambers at the Auschwitz complex. The gas chambers at Birkenau were originally two converted farmhouses, but they didn't work as effectively as the SS desired. Then four large crematorium buildings were constructed between March and June 1943, and these buildings had three components, a disrobing area, a large gas chamber, and crematorium ovens. The SS continued gassing operations at Auschwitz-Birkenau until November of 1944. 
Death marches were conducted in January of 1945 as the Nazis emptied out the camp when Soviet forces approached. A few days after, all but the sick and dying were evacuated. Auschwitz was liberated. And Auschwitz is probably the one that people are most familiar with. It's the one that's talked about the most. And I did not know this until I was doing some research for the book that I wrote, because one of my characters in there had been at a concentration camp. And the reason why they knew this is because he had the tattoo on his arm. And probably many of our listeners, I know that you've seen them when you've done some of your, you had some Jewish clients that you used to do massage on. Correct. I used to go down to the Jewish assisted living place and I did massage and I heard stories. I worked on at least three survivors, direct survivors from concentration camp times. And it was it was like living history talking to them, but my heart just broke every time they told me their stories. And of course, they probably were children, right? The one, she actually lucked out because her father knew what was coming, and so he sent her and her sister to South America. Mm. So they they did not get into any of the concentration camps, but their entire family, including her father, that had helped so many people in the community, were were killed. Wow. were exterminated. And that's what she would tell me. She said, you know, he helped everybody. But when they came from him, nobody would say would would step forward. Nobody would help him. And that was um, her big thing. And then the other lady was there and she survived the concentration camps, but her entire family was killed there. And I remember her holding on to my hand, begging me not to let people forget because there is a group of people that say it's all propaganda, that none of this happened. And she was clinging on to my hand saying, please, please don't let them forget. Don't let them forget what happened to my family. And then the other one was the gentleman and he had the tattoo on his forearm for the concentration camp. And I wanted my character in this book to have the tattoo and that's how they would know. And at first I had that he was at Dachau. Well, when I was doing my research, I found out that if you see those tattoos on people, those were only used at Auschwitz. Oh, wow. So if somebody is has a tattoo, they were at Auschwitz. And I don't know if they do it nowadays. I would love to hear from some of our listeners who have kids that are in high school right now or have been in high school recently. Do they still show the movies that we watched when we were in school? Because I'm, I'm pretty sure you probably did. I know that we saw the official video that they had, I believe, on the day that the Soviets went in and liberated Dachau. And they just went in with a camera. And you're just looking at exactly what they found that day. And as a senior in high school, it was, I mean, I had no words. And what our teacher actually did is she passed out a blank sheet of paper to everybody. And then after we watched it, she said, draw your feelings. So rather than write a report or something like that, she just had us draw. And it, it was really good. And I will never forget those images. Of course, I've seen them now as an adult, too, because we've seen documentaries and things like that. And it was just to see that and think, oh, those are human bodies that are just piled on top of each other. Or you'd see a man who was walking towards these liberators, the Soviets, and he basically looks like a skeleton with skin on it. So I, I hope that they are still showing those to the kids nowadays, because even though they're incredibly disturbing, I think it needs to be seen because you need to see that that's what it was like. Dachau was the first concentration camp built by the Nazis, and construction began in March of 1933. So if you think of when World War II started, their whole plan to implement this final solution was already being put into place back in 1933. So like Denise said, they were very patient, and they were very manipulative. 
when you look at the cycle, we didn't want to get into all of the details, but just how slowly it started. It would just be one little thing that the Jewish people couldn't be outside after a certain time at night. So they had a curfew. And then it was, they couldn't live in this area. And then you couldn't have your businesses. And then you had to turn over your artwork. And it was just one thing after another until finally it was like, you're getting shipped off and killed. It was just amazing, the ramp up. The grounds had originally been an abandoned munitions factory. Dachau was named for the nearby medieval town, 10 miles northwest of Munich. Few Jews were imprisoned here in the beginning. Most prisoners were political prisoners, repeat criminals, gays, Jehovah's Witnesses. I thought this was interesting how many times I would see Jehovah's Witnesses just pop up. So they were specifically pulled out and uh, sent over there. And then, of course, we have the Roma people as well. Hitler wanted to make sure that camps could operate as they wished. So after a Munich schoolteacher was beaten and strangled to death at Dachau in 1933, he issued an edict stating that Dachau and all other concentration camps were not to be subjected to German law as it applied to German citizens. This put the SS administrators in charge. In 1937, it was expanded and became the training center for SS concentration camp guards. The Dachau camp system grew to 100 sub-camps, and 11,000 Jews were brought in to join the other prisoners that were already there. Thousands of Soviet prisoners of war were sent to Dachau starting in 1941, and most were taken to a nearby rifle range and shot to death. In 1942, construction began at Dachau on Barrack X, which was used as a crematorium that had four sizable ovens. Most of Dachau's prisoners were sent to other camps to be exterminated when they became ill or unable to work, as Dachau was mainly a work camp. They did kill people there, but this was mostly where they had the people building weapons and different things that would help the Germans with the war. By 1944, the camp was overcrowded with 30,000 prisoners. U.S. forces liberated Dachau in April of 1945, but not before the Nazis sent the able-bodied prisoners, about 7,000, on a death march to Tagernessee. In 1965, a memorial site was created on the grounds of the former Dachau concentration camp, and people can visit the grounds and access the library. And you're going to find this over and over again, these death marches. It was like as the Allies or the Soviets or the Americans would close in on a concentration camp, I don't know why they would do it, but they would round up anybody who could still walk and basically march them to death to the next concentration camp until the Allied forces got there. And then it was march them to the next one. I'm like, I, I don't understand why they just kept marching them somewhere. Why not just leave them there and run? I'm, I don't know if they thought they were going to hide what they were doing or I'm not sure. Bergen-Belsen was the scene of the death of 50,000 people, including Anne Frank. The camp was established in 1940. It was in a location south of the small towns of Bergen and Belsen, about 11 miles north of Sill, Germany, and that is how it came to be named. Like the other death camps, Bergen-Belsen was composed of numerous camps. The original purpose of this camp was to house prisoners of war, but in April of 1943, the SS Economic Administration main office that headed up the concentration camp system took over a portion of Bergen-Belsen and converted it into a civilian residence camp. As the final solution ramped up, the camp was converted to a concentration camp. World War II started winding down in early 1945, with the Allied and Soviet forces getting a foothold into Germany. This forced the Nazis to start moving more of their prisoners, and Bergen-Belsen became a collection camp for those that survived the death marches. Resources were overwhelmed, and the POW portion of the camp was switched to a large women's camp. This camp housed women evacuated from Flossenburg, Gross Rosen, Ravensbrück, 
Nuremberg, Mauthausen, and Buchenwald concentration camps. The camp had a population of 7,300 prisoners in July of 1944. By April of 1945, there were 60,000 prisoners, so you can imagine the conditions. I mean, just think about that. That is not even a year, and they went from 7,300 to 60,000. That's disgusting. Diseases like typhus, tuberculosis, typhoid fever, and dysentery were rampant, and there was little food or water. That anyone survived is a miracle. On April 15, 1945, British forces liberated Bergen-Belsen. They found thousands of unburied corpses and around 60,000 prisoners in the camp. More than 13,000 of the freed would die after liberation as they were too ill to recover. And when you see pictures of what they looked like, it is amazing that any of them managed to recover. Now, those are the main camps that we're focusing on because these are the camps that we have information about hauntings going on at. Obviously, there were a lot more camps. We mentioned several of them in people being moved from these other camps. But we concentrated on these ones not only because they're the most well-known, but also because they're the ones that we have information about hauntings. We wanted to talk a little bit about just in general, prisoners that were going to be gassed in all of the camps were stripped of their clothes, belongings, and even the fillings in their teeth. After being killed in the gas chambers, their bodies were thrown into mass graves. And I think a lot of people are probably aware that many of the people who were going into the gas chambers thought they were going in to have showers. They had no idea what was coming for them. And you can only imagine what it must have been like for A lot of the times it was the women and children who were sent that way and their husbands probably you get to the other side and you'd see they're bringing all the bodies out of there. You're like, that was not a shower. Mm. Those that were stronger were kept alive to do forced labor. The conditions were horrible and few survived. The temperatures were freezing, disease was rampant, and they were starved. Some people managed to escape, but nobody would believe that such horrible camps existed. So they would get out of there and tell the world, this is what's going on there, and nobody thought that that, there's no way. Well, of course, there's a lot of people today that think it was all propaganda and that they never existed, even with all the proof we have. So I can imagine back then when it was just word of mouth that they were like, no, that's, they couldn't even conceive how horrible something like that would be. I mean, for any of us to think that, because it's not like you just have a group of people. I mean, we've got hate groups out there everywhere. And so, yeah, that that's easy to believe. But not only is this so devastating because you had the millions of people being murdered, but it was condoned by a country, a state government. And that is what really makes us horrible. That, to me, is what makes it so horrible. And that's probably why it was so unbelievable, because it was like, how can all these German people think this way? And how could this be going on? So... So, of course, it just continued to go on. And it wasn't until, I believe, Dachau, when it was freed, that the Soviets brought the film out and said, oh, my God, look at this. When the camps were finally liberated after the war ended, the world would finally see just how horrible the conditions were and find out that millions of people were murdered. Because of the pain and suffering and death, it's easy to believe that the concentration camps would be havens for spiritual activity from both the innocent who were murdered or horribly treated or as manifestations from the utter evil perpetrated on the victims of the Holocaust. No professional paranormal group has ever investigated in a former death camp. These investigators are as uncomfortable with the idea of appearing to be disrespectful as we are to talk about the haunting activity. 
Is it the intensity of the suffering at these places that makes it feel wrong to talk about ghosts? Could it possibly help some lost and tortured souls if people did come in and talk to them, listen to their stories, or try to help them cross over? Why is it okay to investigate asylums or places of tragedy, but not a death camp? For us, talking about the spirits here helps to magnify just how horrible these places were, and one thing we can never allow to happen is for people to forget or be unaware of what happened. And we certainly do not want history to repeat such atrocities. Auschwitz is considered one of the world's most haunted locations. Visitors have reported feeling multiple cold spots while wandering the fields, and after entering through the gates, there's a sense of dread and sadness that is overwhelming. And I can imagine that that's not even a spiritual feeling. That is just the magnitude of what you're looking at and coming into. And I believe it's at Auschwitz that you go through those gates, and then they have little placards along the way to let you know that this is like where this person used to pick up the bodies or something and then it something over here and then something over there and so you would get a feeling of what it was like for those people when they were walking into the camps for the first time there are people who suddenly burst into tears after entering and they can't contain themselves until they leave the saddest stories are those that claim to feel the tiny hands of unseen children slip into theirs in the children's centers or the gas chamber or when they stop to look at the heaps of shoes taken from prisoners and notice a child's tiny shoe in the pile Visitors report that their cameras have jammed as they tried to photograph displays, and some have caught strange shapes and orbs in their photos. Disembodied voices have been heard pleading for help in the rooms where bunk beds are on display. And truly chilling is that birds do not enter the camp, and in the rare times that they do, they do not sing. There is only one gas chamber still left at Auschwitz, and it is small and dark. Many visitors have reported hearing weird noises, and some have captured pictures and videos featuring strange figures in that gas chamber. Cold, moving spots in the air are felt, and the touch of an unseen hand on a shoulder or back is not unusual. A girl from Finland writes the Paranormal Blogging blog, and she wrote of her experiences visiting Auschwitz. After that, we went to the barrack number 13, the worst barrack in Auschwitz. There they tested the Zyklon B gas. They killed thousands of humans in that barrack, or in the cellar, actually. When we went down the stairs, I finally noticed something. It was cold, just like in the haunted places. I started to hear weird noises from my headphones. It was like screaming, but not very loud. Everyone else noticed it, too. When I turned my headphones off, it ended. I could also sense the despair again. Some people unexpectedly started to cry. There was a small room with a large candle. It was to respect the memory of a man who asked to get killed instead of a man who had a family. The man he saved by his death survived from Auschwitz alive. And also from that paranormal blogging website, she writes, I got one picture of something paranormal. There were barracks on two sides of the railroad tracks. The other side was not open for tourists and visitors, but I could clearly see a man in one of the barracks. I took a picture of it with Zoom. It looks like it's wearing the white stringed hat of Auschwitz prisoners. Maybe I captured the famous spirit of Auschwitz. I'm sorry about the bad resolution. Also see the orbs around the figure. And we do have that picture in our show notes. I don't know. It does look like there's somebody standing in that doorway to me. And so if there's not supposed to be anybody on that side, I don't know. Dachau once housed over 200,000 prisoners and 25,000 people died there. Many Nazi guards came to an end along the death walls of the camp as Allied forces executed them after witnessing the horrors of the camp and the condition of the prisoners. 
The city of Dachau lives under the shadow of this dark past and has been seeking redemption ever since. The dead speak through memorials and placards, bullet holes in the walls, and smoke-stained crematory chimneys. People report hearing audible cries of pain and feeling as though they are being touched. Again, an overwhelming feeling of sorrow is felt. Bamastrico 7 wrote, I'm in the army. I'm stationed in Germany. My wife and I recently took a trip to the Dachau concentration camp in Munich. I watched ghost hunters a lot and was really interested in paranormal activity. When we arrived there, you could feel a strong presence in the air. The camp was really big and it took a whole day to walk through all of it. But what I really don't understand, and while I'm writing this, is because while walking through the area where the barracks used to be, I got sick, just out of nowhere. As I walked a little further, it went away. My question is, was that paranormal? I was feeling fine all day until I got to that section. My wife and I walked to the old crematory. There were stories of how people were tortured. As we walked in, I was taking pictures, and as my wife walked in, she almost passed out and had a severe headache. After we walked out, it went away. I took some pictures inside there, and you could see two small orbs in the picture. So again, my question is, did my wife and I have paranormal experiences? I know that this isn't necessarily a story, but it has been a question on my mind for quite some time now. Well, all I know is that when paranormal investigators go into a place, particularly that has a dark something or another there, that they tend to get nauseous and feel sick. And so... Or it could be any kind of energy that they're feeling. Because I would assume that wherever this area is, there's probably not a lot of electricity and EMF, which can sometimes cause those feelings too. So I don't know. It sounds like maybe they might have had some kind of an experience from the emotions there. A 17th century castle in the Czech town of Ostrov was captured by the Nazis in 1939, and they turned it into a concentration camp for Czech resistance fighters. These prisoners were treated just as poorly as the Jews and others. The castle now houses a museum, and there's a claim that CCTV footage captured paranormal activity. The staff decided to review footage after objects allegedly started to vanish. They witnessed a strange figure in the footage. The shadowy figure appears to move in front of the camera after all the rooms were locked and closed. Local media reported the story after the police were contacted. Apparently, the quote-unquote ghost was seen on footage twice in one month. The camera is in the exhibition room where treasures belonging to the former castle owners, the Schlick family, are stocked. Paranormal investigator Hannah Makiova was asked to come and investigate. She said, I felt some negative zones in some rooms. Something is definitely wrong there. I was very weak, felt sick, and I had to leave. Local council employee Zuzana Zelensna, one of those who have offices in the castle, said, The ghost removes objects at night. Bergen-Belsen and Auschwitz were rumored to be haunted by an infamous ghost. This spirit is said to belong to one of the most vile women to have ever lived, and that is Irma Greece. She is one of the most notorious guards to come out of Auschwitz. She was born in Germany in 1923 and became fascinated by the Nazi female youth. Her father disowned her after she was stationed at her first concentration camp in 1940. She arrived at Auschwitz in 1943 and was placed in charge of the 30,000 female Jewish prisoners there. She relished her role in deciding who was sent to the gas chambers and who survived. For those she allowed to escape death in the gas chambers, she dealt out degrading punishments and limited food so most of the women starved. It is rumored that she was the lover of Dr. Mengele while at Auschwitz. In 1945, she was sent to Bergen-Belsen, where her abusive behavior and murderous ways continued. 
After the war, she was arrested. Greece was described as the beautiful beast by those who testified against her at her trial. During these trials, it also came to light that she owned a light shade made of the human skin of her victims. She was found guilty and hanged for her crimes. A story about that claims that no one wanted to be responsible for executing a woman. Now, I would have no problem if it's her because I don't consider her a woman. So a Jewish hangman named Letzheim volunteered. Greece hated Jews, of course, and screamed that if he touched her, she would return to haunt those who sentenced her to death. Her specter started to be seen at both Bergen-Belsen and Auschwitz in 1948. So it would seem that she did not come back to haunt those who put her to death, but to roam the places of her atrocities. And then we do have a couple of other pictures that were captured in the death camps that are a little unusual. Uh, one of them has what looks like a, a fog in front of a guy who's getting his picture taken. And it's really weird. I've never seen anything like that necessarily. And then there's another one that is outside of the, I, I believe those are ovens. And it's kind of this streaky coloring that's going across it. It either could be somebody who walked through the picture and this is the result of that, or maybe it's something else. The final solution, thankfully, did not reach its goal of total annihilation of the Jewish people. It is important that we continue to speak of this time in history so that it is never repeated again. Whether there are ghosts at any of these camps is really irrelevant, as the true hauntings of these death camps are what has been left behind as a testament to just how cruel and horrible some human beings can be to each other. And whether one believes in ghosts or not, we think that all can agree that these camps are indeed haunted in one way or the other. So, that was fun, wasn't it? Nope. Well, we'd love to have you guys check out our website at historyghostbump.com. And Denise, if people want to send us some feedback, where can they do that? They can do that at historyghostbump at gmail.com. Occasionally, we do have people who leave us comments on the website. We wanted to thank Rachel and Rachel and Jessica for your comments. We appreciate those. And we have some podcast reviews from Apple Podcasts to share. The first two are from Canada. Vicky 22, Family Friendly History and Spooky Stories, five stars. Being passionate about history and the paranormal, this show quickly became my favorite podcast to listen to. They cover international locations, and I was very happy to see an episode on Ottawa, Ontario, my native city. I have visited the Carleton County Jail countless times and was able to verify for myself that the research done by the ladies and their research crew is very accurate and extensive. The ghost stories featured are always interesting and told with open-minded skepticism, leaving the listener to draw their own conclusions. The hosts, Diane and Denise, are an absolute joy to listen to with their lighthearted banter. They care deeply about the show and about every one of their listeners. This is obvious by all the time and effort they invest in cultivating a positive and respectful relationship on the Spooktacular crew. Keep up the amazing work, ladies. Well, thank you, Vicki. And then the Mad Hatter from Canada, Addicted to History, five stars. I discovered this podcast about a week ago and have been listening to it as much as possible. I love it. It's easy to listen to and educational, too. There are times when it seems the music gets to be a bit loud after a speaking section, which was very soft. That's my only complaint, but I become trained to adjust the volume when I hear certain cues. Keep up the great work. Well, thank you, Mad Hatter. And then back here in America, gaming unicycle style. Fabulous five stars. I love the show. The stories are very interesting, and the hosts are full of good information. I listen all day at work just trying to catch up with the current episode. Keep up the great job. Thanks, everybody, for those reviews. We want to thank you guys for joining us for this episode. I've been your host, Diane. And this has been Denise. You take care now. Bye-bye. This episode has been brought to you by our executive producers. 
Dispatches from the Grave Digger. We'd like to welcome into the cemetery Rebecca Davis Nord and Melissa C. Smith Deal, who both will be receiving their marble headstones. And Rosa Marie Ward is going to be getting a chest tomb. Thank you, ladies, for becoming executive producers. We appreciate that. Sweet dreams. 